This is Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris. Thanks for listening. This is an audio-only version of our podcast. To see the full video interview, check out tendingbar.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tending Barcast. Hi, I'm Todd Harris, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Tending Bar. Uh, Tending Bar is all about the legal profession and the lives of lawyers and big issues in the law. As you know, we got started as a way to encourage my students at Georgetown to think about careers of meaning, careers that make a positive impact on society. Uh, but it's more than that. Um, by helping students learn from people who have interesting stories to tell about their legal careers, we've discovered that they are stories that we should all hear, things from which we can take our cues and take a lead in, in how we can find meaning and purpose in our own careers, whether they be careers in the law or outside the law. But today we are gonna talk with a lawyer who has done something important. We're gonna celebrate a legal victory today, but as we do that, we're talking about something quite serious. There are today some statutes in a number of states, I think there are six remaining now, that are uh, discriminatory laws that are anti-LGBT. In my own home state of Alabama, where I was raised, the 1992 law requires teachers, if they talk about same-sex relationships, only to instruct students that such relationships are outside the norms of society and unacceptable and are, are to be prosecuted under Alabama statute. Those statutes have long been ruled to be unconstitutional, and so the law is unenforceable, but nonetheless, it remains on the books and uh, remains a taboo subject to talk about in school. There are similar laws in other states. Today, we're gonna to be talking to, uh, with my friend, Kevin Hall, who has been involved in a similar, uh, in a litigation around a similar statute in the state of South Carolina, uh, with some recent good news and developments there that he'll share with us. So I'd like to introduce you to, to Kevin now. Hey, Kevin, you're online, you're on the air now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. Glad to join you. Listen, we have a lot to talk about today, and I really appreciate you joining us because uh, this project you've been involved with recently is very important, not just in the state of South Carolina, but hopefully as precedent elsewhere. But I wonder if, if first we can just uh, get a little background on you. Tell us, you know, why did you become a lawyer? Todd, I wish I could tell you there was some grand plan. Uh, I, truth be told, I'm, I'm the, the son of a professor. Um, I was an international studies major. I was always interested in politics and policy and ideas. <clears throat> I knew when I was an international studies major, I was going to have to probably go to grad school or do something else, uh, uh, really to have a, a, a chance in a job market. Um, and, and really through a process of elimination, I ended up going to law school. It wasn't a passion. It wasn't a, uh, a calling. Uh, it became one. Uh, but it was not initially. I went to law school really by default. Um, uh, it was better than getting a job. Um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, when I went, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and, and candidly, throughout law school, which I didn't really enjoy, um, uh, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to practice law. Um, uh, I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so it all worked out great. But uh, uh, that's kind of how I ended up on the journey. Well, so that's interesting that you say that, that it wasn't initially a calling, but became one. So tell us just a little bit generally about your practice and how you came to, to be part of that practice. 
I am a commercial litigator. I represent, uh, you know, mostly large companies in business to business disputes, um, which is intellectually satisfying. It is, it is competitively satisfying. It is, uh, uh, there's the thrill of victory. There's uh, uh, lots of reward in those ways. Uh, but there is a bit of an emptiness, at least for me, uh, in terms of, uh, I'll pick up your phrase, you know, careers of meaning. Um, yeah, this is good. Yeah, I'm good at what I do. Yeah, I do a great job for my client. And I make them happy. Um, and that's rewarding. But it's not the same as helping somebody in need or solving a problem or advancing uh, uh, equality for a group of people. And uh, so early in my career, I began uh, becoming involved in a variety of pro bono projects. Uh, uh, and they range from helping individuals with individual problems, all kinds of, of, of everyday life things. Um, and then as I, as I got older and uh, uh, I began to be more interested in policy and related questions and impact litigation and ended up uh, uh, taking on a variety of impact cases over the years, including the one that you described uh, uh, as we begin today. So uh, I think you're being a little bit modest, Kevin. So uh, for those outside North Carolina, they might not be aware that you are sort of a political heavy hitter within the state. You count, you count among your clients some very important politicians. Are, are you able to tell us about sure, some of those sure. representations? Yeah, I, I uh, uh, have made my home on the Republican side of the aisle. I tend to uh, uh, be more comfortable there, uh, often frustrated there, but still more comfortable there. Um, I took a sabbatical uh, in 2002 uh, from my practice for nine months to help manage Mark Sanford's gubernatorial campaign, uh, represented and still represent Governor uh, Sanford, uh, uh, then Congressman Sanford. Um, uh, Lindsey Graham is and has been a client. Uh, Tim Scott is and has long been a client. Uh, and these are friends uh, uh, as well as uh, as clients, Nikki Haley as well, uh, defended Nikki Haley and uh, a series of ethics proceedings here that were very, very politically motivated. And we successfully defended uh, Governor Haley and Governor Haley against those claims. Uh, also defended Mark Sanford's impeachment. Uh, it's a rare thing in American society for a governor to face impeachment, um, uh, Indeed, just yeah. as at the federal level, obviously. Um, but successfully represented uh, Governor Sanford in impeachment proceedings arising uh, out of and after his well-publicized affair. Um, and so uh, uh, I have always um, tried to take the law uh, to the intersection of public policy and politics. I like that intersection of, of the law, policy, and politics, and, and very much enjoy that. And I, for me, at least, I feel like that's um, the place I can hopefully make the, the biggest impact, the, the biggest difference uh, in a positive way. Well, that's great. And that's important background for our viewers and listeners, I think, because it plays into why you've been just the right person for uh, the project that we're going to talk about. So uh, we're here today to talk about the recent case that you were involved in uh, that was related to a statute in South Carolina that had been on the books since the late 80s, a discriminatory statute and similar to the Alabama statute I described earlier. Can you tell us just a little bit about the statute and um Let's hear about that and its impact. You know, um, tell, you know, what was the statute? What was the rule in South sure. Carolina? We had in South Carolina and still have a Comprehensive Health Education Act. It was enacted in 1988. Uh, throughout the country in, in the late 80s and early 90s, you saw a lot of change in health education 
curriculum and, and statutory authorization in the country. And you had an interesting confluence of, of a variety of events. You had um, parts of the country, uh, like the Deep South, where I've been born and raised and live, um, who historically have been hostile to sex education in a public school setting, becoming uh, acquainted with the idea and recognizing in the context of an HIV-AIDS crisis that maybe, maybe uh, sex education in public schools wasn't so bad. So you ended up with a, a new openness for, uh, for, for comprehensive education, including sex education, but you also ended up with, uh, with some real bias in the statutes. And as you mentioned in, in your introduction, uh, about eight states in the country, depending on how you count them and how you categorize the laws, enacted what came to be called no promo homo laws, no promotion of homosexuality. And the idea was, uh, uh, among policymakers and, and legislators uh, at that time, was, well, let's have health education. Uh, let's do the birds and the bees. But for goodness sakes, we're not going to promote homosexuality as if you talk someone into being gay, right? Uh, that was the, the, uh, apparently the prevailing notion at the time. Um, and so you ended up with uh, these no promo homo laws, specifically here in South Carolina, our uh, Comprehensive Health Education Act included a provision that said there could be no discussion of same-sex relationships in the context of, of health instruction, except in the context of the transmission of disease. So you couldn't talk about uh, the birds and the bees. You couldn't talk about um, anything to do with same-sex relationships unless it had to do with the disease transmission. So you can imagine uh, associating uh, loving relationships legally exclusively with one thing, and that is disease transmission. Um, as you described, other states uh, have and had similar statutes. You described the Alabama statutes, uh, which in, in my view at least is one of the, of the more repugnant of the statutes. Um, Utah had a statute. Uh, Arizona had a statute, and then most of the, the southern states that uh, uh, you might expect to have a statute, most did. And these all, these all apply to public schools in particular? Correct. All, at every, at every grade level uh, or, you know, in any, in any kind of uh, educational level, did it apply to colleges as well? It, it, it applied in, typically in K-12 through education, each state having its own wrinkle and its own timing for delivery of, of sex education or health education. Uh, including uh, sexual content. Um, so little wrinkles here and there, but by and large, we're talking K through 12, uh, public schools, and any education that involved uh, in, in, involved uh, sex or, or reproductive health. So I, I, for you. I, wonder, I wonder in particular, Kevin, what kind of impact would that have on, on children in the classrooms, uh, gay or straight? You know, uh, any of the children in the classroom, if that is the message, the message communicated by the taboo of speaking about same-sex relationships or the, or the affirmative messages being actually communicated about disease, yeah. what impact it's, would that have? It's a terrible impact um, and, a, and a demonstrably terrible impact. Uh, the stigmatization associated with, uh, with same-sex relationships or being gay or being LGBTQ more broadly, 
uh, is extraordinary. Imagine this. This is a topic that the, the elected officials of your state have decided uh, is unworthy of discussion. It is an unmentionable and an unmentionable possibility, except to make people know that it could involve the transmission of disease, uh, as, of course, can any type of sexual relationship. But an incredible stigmatization. And, and, and it's compounded because the teacher, uh, who ought to be a, a, a source of truth and light um, in, in, uh, in, in a young person's mind, is forbidden to address a question. So it would go something like this. A young person, if they asked a question about same-sex relationships or uh, or, or safety or health in the context of a same-sex relationship, a teacher uh, under the penalty of, of termination had to say, listen, we're not allowed to talk about that. Johnny, let me refer you back to page 44 of the textbook and let's continue our discussion here. In other words, absolutely taboo. And that is how most uh, districts, uh, school districts in South Carolina instructed their teachers uh, to deal with these types of questions. Now, if you're Johnny in that classroom, imagine hearing that. It may be a question uh, from a straight uh, kid named Johnny. It may be from a kid who is gay named Johnny or a kid who's not sure who they are and of their own sexual identity. Imagine in this day and age, uh, 30 years plus removed from 1988, if you're sitting in that classroom and you had same-sex parents. Imagine if you've got a gay brother, a cousin, um, a sister. Um, it is an incredibly uh, demeaning and stigmatizing statute that is reflected um, in uh, states with uh, similar provisions with much higher suicide rates, much higher rates of bullying um, among uh, and visited upon LGBTQ students. Gay adolescents and teens, LGBTQ to be more broad, have extraordinarily higher suicide rates uh, than, than kids of the same age. This is even more so the case in states with no promo homo laws that take that historical societal stigmatization, um, enact it in law, codify it, and then impose it through their education systems like we had here in South Carolina. Yeah. Well, you know, I try, I don't share a lot of personal information on, on Tending Bar, but as, as you and I have talked about, this is a personal issue for me. I lost a niece just a few years ago to suicide. She was a, a wonderful, brilliant, talented, promising uh, young woman who happened to be gay, uh, raised in the public schools in Alabama, and uh, she took her own life a few years ago, uh, despite having a loving and accepting uh, family and friends around her. But she suffered the consequences and depression that often accompanies the stigma that the broader community in the schools uh, brought. So I, I, our family knows firsthand yeah. that there is an impact um, to all that negative pressure that we put. And when we codify that in law, it's, it's all the more real to these kids. It absolutely. Is. And, and, and stories like, like the one you just shared, Todd, it's, it's devastating to me to hear the stories. Uh, it, look, growing up presents plenty of challenges, right, uh, in the best of circumstances. Um, to, to see a young person in such despair uh, that he or she would take their own life um, it, it is, I, I think, as bad as it gets. Um, and to see us uh, 
with, with statutes that we know increase the likelihood of this happening, um, I, I think is terrible. Um, and that had a lot to do with, with my personal motivation to see that we strike down the statute in South Carolina. I, I, uh, well, I tell, tell me, too, that it, it, I'm sure it has an, it, we know it has an impact on the students, all students. What impact was it having on the teachers? First of all, I, I, as I've shared with you, I've known teachers, gay teachers, who've had violence acted upon them. And um, to, to not be able to be themselves in their place of employment, um, among their colleagues, and to be stigmatized as teachers, what, what kind of impact do these uh, statues in the South Carolina? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. You used the example there of, of, of an LGBTQ teacher. Um, that teacher, uh, unfortunately, is not helped uh, by uh, our victory here in South Carolina in the sense of anything he or she uh, can do about living their full life at work, being completely themselves at work. But the, the impact it had on that teacher and, and every straight teacher as well is uh, the inability to help a kid. Um, even though many of the statutes limited the, the, the gag rule on same-sex relationships and discussions of them to the health context, they had a bleed-over effect. Uh, Utah had an explicit prohibition on this discussion across any curriculum. South Carolina's was limited to comprehensive health education. But there's a bleed-over factor. When a teacher hears a kid being bullied in the hall, called a faggot, pushed around, um, dyke, lesbian, all the epithets, a teacher is much less likely to step in and try to protect that, protect that child. One of the plaintiffs in our case was a kid uh, who was routinely bullied, um, faggot, uh, you know, uh, made fun of his uh, supposed anatomy. I mean, just horrific behavior. A child uh, being held down in a classroom with a teacher witnessing being wiped with, uh, with, uh, with Clorox wipes saying, uh, and a kid telling him that the, uh, the, the, the road to hell is paved in, uh, uh, in rainbow colors and wiping him with Clorox because he was dirty. This is the type of thing uh, that happens. Um, it happens in all degrees, not all that extreme and that vulgar, but it happens uh, systemically. So to, to, to tell a teacher that you cannot help a child or to suggest to a teacher, at least, that you cannot help a child or intervene is extraordinary. Teachers would come to us as lawyers taking this cause on, um, come to the superintendent of education uh, here in South Carolina, statewide elected official, and to their own district superintendents and complain about the statute. Um, of course, they're power powerless to do anything about it other than either have it struck down by a court uh, as unconstitutional or to have the General Assembly revoke it. So uh, the, the limitation on a teacher's ability to help a kid is extraordinary. Um, and, and that's I think one of the most important benefits of striking the statute now. Well, so, so tell us about the case and, and um, how you came to be involved with it. I had uh, just a, a little bit of uh, a personal information. I'm a, 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 a gay guy. I'm a dad. I've got four kids. I was married for 20 plus years to a wonderful, wonderful woman who is uh, still my dear friend. Um, so I, I've watched kids grow up. I've been a dad helping kids grow up. I've seen kids um, that were LGBTQ be harassed by friends of my children. Um, and I always had, uh, unbeknownst to many, because I wasn't out, 
a, a, a sore and uh, place in my heart to see this going on. And I remembered what it felt like to sit in classrooms as a kid when I wasn't sure who I was and to hear these types of, uh, of epithets um, and to see uh, teachers unable or unwilling to, to, to really intervene. So th- it, it was always an issue that, that bothered me. Um, I wanted to take it on, didn't know how to do it. Um, and uh, I'm not a constitutional lawyer per se. I've handled a variety of cases involving constitutional issues, but it's not what I do all day, every day. And uh, began to build a team of lawyers here in South Carolina and uh, within uh, my law firm, uh, Womble Bond Dickinson, you and I happen to be partners in the same law firm, uh, who said, look, look let's, let's commit ourselves to, to becoming excellent in this subject matter um, and mastering the subject matter. Um, and then began to work with uh, uh, South Carolina Equality, which is our leading uh, statewide uh, LGBTQ equality organization. Um, and then began to branch out and work with organizations in other states, including a couple of national organizations that are tremendously talented, Lambda Legal um, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and then also an organization called the Campaign for Southern Equality um, out of Asheville. All tremendously talented uh, folks um, and, and, and really good people who do a great job. And we put a team together. Um, I, I assembled that team. I built that team. Um, I was the only South Carolina uh, licensed lawyer that was going to be uh, in Bray. Um, and we, uh, we, we just, we, uh, you know, certainly evaluated the law, analyzed the law. We knew pretty early on how we were going to attack it from an equal protection perspective. Um, we did a lot of work vetting plaintiffs, identifying and vetting potential plaintiffs. You can imagine uh, when, when, uh, most of the health care at issue, uh, excuse me, health education at issue here in South Carolina takes place in ninth grade. If you want injunctive relief, you're going to have to have a kid who's younger than that. Well, you don't just walk up to a, a, an eighth grader or seventh grader who you think is gay or might be gay and ask them if they'd like to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit. <laughs> this is an incredibly difficult position for a young person and certainly their families. And so yeah. we work through um, uh South Carolina Equality and a number of other LGBTQ organizations, Campaign for Southern Equality, of course, as well, uh, which I mentioned, and ultimately had uh, a couple of families step forward and said, we think this is important and we we want to take this on. So that, that's how I came to it and how we assembled the team. Well, so uh, this this case didn't quite take uh, the, the pathway that a lot of folks uh, would have expected. Uh, you were able actually to s- procure some... Um, cooperation from the government officials, uh, it sounds like. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, our expectation, certainly my expectation, was that we would uh, we would litigate this case to conclusion, uh, including appeals to the courts. Um, that would be uh, what the history books would tell you happens uh, in South Carolina when you challenge an unpopular, uh, excuse me, uh, a, a popular statute or, or, a, or a statute that uh, uh, gives effect to historic bias. Um, civil rights era would, would tell you that. And unfortunately, some of our recent history would, would, would suggest that as well. So my expectation, our expectation was we're going to be in a multi-year fight um, and, uh, and we, we uh, geared up for that. Just prior to filing the suit, our, our anticipated filing date, um, I had discussion with the attorney here, uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan Wilson, he's a Republican attorney general, uh, served multiple terms, 
Uh, Alan, and I'll call him by his first name, uh, is a friend, a person I've known for many years. I've worked with on a variety of political issues um, in Republican circles. A very fine lawyer, very fine individual. Um, I thought that the political circumstances would prevent Alan from doing anything other than defending the statute vigorously. Um, Molly Spearman, uh, the superintendent of education, uh, a former teacher, um, uh, a former member of the General Assembly, um, a statewide elected superintendent of education, a wonderful person, a mother. Um, she also, I thought, uh, would be extraordinarily limited uh, and, and unwilling, I thought, um, to give uh, a, a different approach thought. Um, I didn't think the politics would permit it. But to their credit, uh, both of their credit, uh, through a series of discussions, um, we ultimately uh, found a better path. And, and what happened was uh, the superintendent had long been bothered by the statute. Uh, the superintendent requested an advisory opinion, as she can do under the law as an elected official, from the attorney general as to the constitutionality of the statute. Uh, a brave request on her part. Uh, just as brave in reply, the Attorney General and his very talented staff, including the Solicitor General, a gentleman by the name of Bob Cook, um, they replied to the request uh, for an advisory opinion. And they opined that based on the law, uh, as it had changed so much in the last 25 years in America, that this statute violated the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution by uh, discriminating uh, against a class of individuals, LGBT students. Um, the Attorney General, uh, in a, about 15-page opinion, gave a thorough consideration and analysis to the question and concluded what I think most scholars and most lawyers uh, fairly reading the statute and the, and the case would also conclude. To his credit, he was brave enough to uh, answer her question. He didn't have to. And he was brave enough to leave the politics aside and answer the question straight up. Um, and so uh, at that point, uh, we knew that we were still going to pursue the litigation because that wasn't going to get rid of the statute or render, render it a nullity. Um, but uh, we thought it was incredibly helpful and important that the state's chief law enforcement officer and the state superintendent of education requested advisory opinion and said publicly that she agreed with the holding and the findings of the advisory opinion. Um, that was a big step. So we filed our lawsuit um, and uh, almost simultaneously we're negotiating a, a judgment and consent decree that would strike the statute down and uh, have it rendered uh, uh, unenforceable. And who, who had to struck. agree to the consent there? Who, who's the case? defendant in this in the, this the case was styled against the superintendent of education uh, i will tell you it bothered me and uh, uh we joked and teased about it that we we had to name uh uh the superintendent of education there's no other way the statutes in south carolina in our constitution uh charge the superintendent with the really the enforcement obligations uh, of the comprehensive education act and um so so that was our defendant obviously in her official capacity only and uh, we went uh, to great lengths to make sure people understood that at all, at every turn. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the, the consent decree uh, was negotiated with the superintendent 
um, and through uh, her very capable general counsel, a woman named Kathy Hazelwood, uh, who was extraordinary. Um, uh, and, and we negotiated the terms of that. Uh, our case had been filed in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Judge Norton had the case. Um, in state Judge court? Norton, uh, federal court. Federal district in, court in, in Charleston. Yeah. Um, and uh, Judge Norton understood the, the constitutional uh, importance of the case, uh, the significance of the issue, um, and uh, really facilitated uh, the parties, uh, we as plaintiffs and, and, the, and the superintendent of education, uh, finding resolution through a, a, a consent uh, order and, and judgment. Um, and so, again, I, I applaud uh, the court as well uh, for uh, really uh, creating an environment where the parties can work well together to try to find resolution. And we did. So the judge issued an order on, on the, um, the negotiated outcome uh, in March. That's and correct. So, absolutely. So first, what's the substance the of that order? order? What, what's yeah, the impact? Yeah, here's the substance. The order declares uh, South Carolina's uh, no promo homo or anti-LGBT uh, curriculum law. Uh, my, that's my preferred uh, uh, lingo for these types of provisions. Uh, it struck it down, said it was unconstitutional, it violated equal protection clause. It, it, it largely tracked the reasoning and the, the analysis of the attorney general, the South Carolina attorney general's opinion. And it would have uh, tracked exactly what we would have been uh, arguing in uh, motions and in, in briefing to the court. Uh, uh, the law here, uh, we were all in agreement with and understood. And, you know, federal judges don't just uh, declare laws unconstitutional willy-nilly, right? Uh, when, you, when you strike a law from the books rather than repeal it by uh, the, the actions of elected officials, it's critically important that it be right. And uh, so... Uh, Judge Norton was very rigorous in his uh, requirements uh, that this be fully um, briefed and analyzed. He obviously concurred with what the parties had concluded um, uh, and gave it effect uh, of the court, of the judicial branch of government, uh, by entry of the order. Importantly, this is the first uh, litigated conclusion with regard to one of these statutes. Uh, the two other statutes that have been struck down in recent years uh, weren't struck down uh, by legal action. Uh, this is in Utah and Arizona. In both instances, a lawsuit was uh, on similar grounds, equal protection, and, and uh, sometimes there was a First Amendment uh, or some other federal statutory grounds. Um, but in both of those situations, the, the, the General Assemblies of those states in Utah and in Arizona repealed the statute literally within, within weeks or months of the lawsuits being filed in federal court in those jurisdictions, the general assemblies of those states, the legislatures acted and repealed the statutes. Um, we um, uh, did not go uh, immediately to the general assembly um, after uh, we filed the lawsuit um, and instead worked through uh, a process with, uh, with our, our, our adversaries there uh, to come to conclusion. But it's this, important because it's precedent in other cases. Uh, and this is in, a more permanent Alabama. solution, right? I mean, a repeal That's law can all, a new law can always be passed. Now we know that uh, this is at least in the in the district in South Carolina, the courts there consider this unconstitutional. You, they won't pass another law that would uh, that would accomplish the same. That's exactly right, and it's also instructive to federal judges who ultimately will hear challenges in other states. 
uh, when lawyers go to Alabama, and, and we will, um, to challenge that statute, a federal judge there will be able to look at Judge Norton's order um, at the briefing surrounding that and, and uh, obviously conduct his or her own analysis uh, based on the briefing of the parties there. But there will be uh, precedent for, um, for a federal judge striking the Alabama statute or the Louisiana statute uh, or other statutes that are similar. And so that's very important. Uh, when, when we were preparing to file suit here, and I looked, I just glanced to my right, I'm looking at the South Carolina General Assembly right out my window here. Um, our state capital is up my window here to the right. Um, we didn't have any authority we could cite specific to these eight states and these provisions uh, because no court had taken it up. So uh, it's an important step forward uh, in the jurisprudence uh, that hopefully will make challenges in other states uh, you know, quicker uh, and more likely to be successful. And just a remarkable outcome. Um, so you, you mentioned something interesting. You said that the, the state superintendent um, was brave to request the advisory yes. opinion and that the attorney general yes. was just as brave to, uh, to, ha- to be willing to offer uh, the opinion and uh, that, that they both acted bravely uh, in, the, in the negotiated uh, outcome. Um, but I, I'm thinking about you. you. You as this very prominent political attorney in the state of South Carolina, a conservative state. I should mention that I, I was once a resident of Columbia, South Carolina as well before, before moving to Alabama. Um, and uh, I, I know that there the legislature might be a little more reluctant. It might have taken longer uh, to pursue that solution. Um, for you to take this up, and, and also as a member of the Republican Party, where there, there's more conservative um, resistance to, to that particular change, perhaps, not, not at all to allege discrimination widely in the party, but, but there, is, there would be some more resistance among the conservative portion of the party. Um, it, it must have taken some, some bravery on your part to, uh, to step forward to, to take this action. I, I guess so, Todd. I'll tell you kind of how I came to it. Uh, I had been a, um, uh, a person who came to understand their orientation uh, later in life. Was married to a wonderful woman with one children who are tremendous, absolutely tremendous. There's no finer human being on earth than, uh, than my, uh, my wife. I'll call her my ex-wife. I guess it's the right term. I hate, I hate the phrase. Uh, my friend, Jamie is her name. When she and I knew that we had to deal with this. We concluded that I had to own this for me, that we had to own it for our family, and that I had to own it for my children. If I moved to another state and continued my practice of law or, or just slipped away in the night, which many people do uh, for completely understandable reasons, um, what would that do for my children, our children? And the conclusion we came to is that we were going to stand together as a family. Our family was going to change, uh, but we were a family and we were going to stand together. And so knowing that your kids and your, and, and, and your uh, lifetime partner and friend um, support you, uh, that takes a lot of the, uh, a lot of the risk away. Right. And then um, to know that uh, I, um, have represented uh, and know just about uh, every prominent Republican in the state. It's a small state. 
I don't say that braggadociously. It's a small state, and I've represented many folks, including the party itself. Um, I had relationships with folks of trust uh, for many, many, many years. I've been involved in many litigated issues, representing Republican candidates, representing causes that, that many Republicans uh, would would, uh, would agree with, and, and many moderates, independents, others as well. Um, it was an opportunity for them to see, wait a second, here's a guy I've known forever that I've always liked and trusted and respected. And now I know one more thing about him. I just happen to know that he's gay, but he's the same guy. And so, um, yeah, it was, I had some trepidation and some, and some, some fear. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, the number of disappointing uh, experience I've had uh, related to this lawsuit um, uh, and, and beyond this lawsuit have been few. The number of, of hugs, some public, some private, uh, that I've received and the encouragement that I've received um, has been extraordinary. Um, so, so, you know, people, people are good, in my view. Uh, look, I think we're all... Uh, you know, capable of good and bad. I do believe in original sin. I'm a, I'm a Catholic guy. Um, but I think we're capable of, of, of real, real good and, and, and uh, on bad days, not, not so good. Uh, what I've experienced is mostly good. And um, uh, I hope in some ways that that, that will uh, make somebody else a little less afraid. Um, uh, I think for a young person in a classroom, the statue and its defeat Hopefully, we'll make a kid a little less afraid, make a teacher less afraid, make a teacher willing to step in. I described a kid being white with Clorox and wipes and kids calling him racial, excuse me, uh, uh, homophobic epithets. I don't think for a minute, uh, I, I pray not for a minute, a teacher would stand by where those racial epithets. And yet somehow, this statute in our history together prevent so many teachers from standing up and stepping in. Um, I hope that'll change. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, you know, uh, brave, I guess, but I, I, I feel really honestly more grateful um, to have had the opportunity and that my life circumstances would, would empower me to be uh, able to bring this case uh and, and, and to present it in a way to elected officials um, um, that didn't lend itself to, to quick caricature or ridicule or, or marginalization um, and allowed them to see uh, the right conclusion and to be uh, brave themselves um, in response to the lawsuit. And I applaud them tremendously for that. I, I, uh, I'm very, very proud of Alan Wilson, I'm very, very proud, proud of, of uh, Molly Spearman. I think they're, uh, we don't always agree on everything. There's things uh, uh, from a policy perspective which I would disagree with both of them. Uh, but they're properly motivated, um, capable, um, honorable public servants who do their best to get it right. And uh, on this day, they got it right as well. And I applaud them yeah. for that. So you, you just illustrated sort of the core point of the whole Tending Bar project is that there are values and purposes that underlie uh, law and policy. And uh, sometimes our application of those values and principles uh, takes the wrong turn in, in the way it comes out in statutes. And um, the, the purpose, the higher purpose of, of lawyers and the profession 
is to keep working to get it right. And um, that's not a, that's not something that is owned by one political party or um, any particular profession. But we we all have uh, that obligation. I like to think to to keep working. And um, you and I are, are a good illustration of this. We share these these values around um, the sacredness of each individual, uh, certainly regardless of sexual orientation. And um, regardless of party, even if we might might be on opposite sides of the political aisle sometimes. And, um, you know, I want to say how grateful I am and my family is. And I know a lot of people are for the hard work that you've done in South Carolina and the positive impact that that will have on kids and teachers and all of us uh, for many years to come. Uh, you know, and I want to want to thank you also for being part of the conversation today and, and sharing with us. Todd, I appreciate it so much. I, let me make one one point in closing, if I might. I think it is um, uh, in our partisan politics today. Uh, it's so important, in my opinion, at least, um, for voices of LGBTQ equality to not come exclusively from a single party. Um, we're able to talk past each other. Um, Many, many Republicans, um, uh, I'll give you an example. There's significant polling data in Georgia and in South Carolina. A majority of Republicans, self-identified Republicans, believe there shouldn't be discrimination against LGBT people based on uh, uh, based on their orientation or, 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 or gender identity in housing, public accommodations, employment, et cetera. Um, many folks uh, from other parts of the country might be shocked to know that. Uh, that there are Republican people here, and I'm not talking about elected officials, I'm talking about the man on the street, the woman on the street, uh, and the polling data would suggest that's a prevailing view. Well, that doesn't reflect our history, and that doesn't reflect the, the state of the law in most of the South. And I think it's really, really important for Republicans to step up and lead, and to lead from within their own party, our own party. I remind people, uh, the Republican Party was the was was and is the party of Lincoln, uh, Emancipation Proclamation, the post Civil War amendments, uh, women's suffrage, um, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, um, Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, the history of the Republican Party, to me, uh, over a long horizon, should be understood understood and and should strive to be the party of equality. That is its birthright. That has not, uh, disappointingly, always been true uh, historically, and, and that's true of any organization. It's particularly not been true in recent years with regard to LGBTQ equality, and I want to be a part of changing that. So I think um, uh, that's another reason I, I, I think it's important for Republicans to step forward uh, on these issues. So I'll, I'll leave you with that. Uh, that came to me as uh, as you were uh, as you were describing. Uh, um, our shared commitment to, to individuals and, and the sacredness of every human being. And I, and I, I just uh, wanted to make that point from a Republican perspective. And I think there's a unique need and opportunity to try to affect change from this side of the aisle. Well, uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. And thank all of you for joining and listening in. Um, you know, I think we all have uh, a debt of gratitude to Kevin and, and uh, the whole team that worked with him, both in South Carolina and around the country, as they demonstrate the kind of values that the profession uh, stands for 
and exactly why we are doing this Tending Bar project. I hope you've drawn some encouragement from our conversation today, and we hope that you'll join us back here for our next episode on Tending Bar. Thanks very much. Thank you.